Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking biofuels on the edge. Over the long term, they're crucial to the energy transition, figuring in most decarbonisation plans in transportation. However, 2023 has highlighted some of the real challenges that they can face, how they're dependent on crop yields in a year when Argentina's yield of soybeans is down 50%, and what would happen when prices rise and start impacting food prices, but also in terms of regulation and consumer demand and choices. Our guest is Walter Cronin. Walter spent a long career in the agri-sector. He was formerly the Chief Commercial Officer at Green Plains, and is now working with a number of investors pursuing the building of oilseed processing capability around the world. I also want to note that we have an upcoming HC Insider podcast live event, this time on September the 14th in central London. Hosted by Onyx Capital Group, we're discussing the future of oil derivatives and who really prices oil today. The panel consists of myself moderating, Greg Newman, CEO of Onyx Capital Group, Savas Manousos, former head of trading at SEPSA, and former guests Kurt Chapman and Tor Svelland, founder and CEO of Svelland Capital. The event is free, but invitation only, and spaces are limited. So if you have interest in coming along and seeing the panel, please do email me or reach out via LinkedIn. If not, you will be able to hear the panel discussion on a future episode of the podcast. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on, whether that's on Spotify or Apple. It really does kick those algorithms into gear, broaden the audience and continue to allow us to get great guests. You can also find us on YouTube and we welcome comments on content or potential guests for future episodes. And finally, I hope you enjoy the episode. Walter, welcome back to the show. So last year, we, we did an episode on kind of a almost a 101, but very much a layer of the land across the, the biofuel space. So I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to that for, for some of the more sort of basic concepts, if you'd like, around ethanol, renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, and even biomass as well. We've got you back on because there's, you know, as a as partly as an update to what's going on in the market, but the markets are also, or the whole sector is kind of somewhat a, on on the edge for a variety of reasons, both agricultural in terms of crop supply, in terms of policy, in terms of global demand and consumer behavior and so forth. So that's what we're going to weave through today. But let's sort of start on the grains and oilseeds crop and market, because this is this is sort of a, perhaps a tale that as yet has rather flown under the radar. And it's a story of environmental impact on crops around the world that's, that should, well, it, it, you're going to argue, is not priced into the into the risk uh, at the moment. So so let's let's start there. Maybe we should start sort of at ground zero, so to speak, which is Argentina. Argentina has a, a particularly important place in the world for protein meals and for oils. Historically, it's, it's provided 50% of global trade. And that's, that's a function of policy. The government of Argentina pursued industrial production versus the Brazilians who, who produced feedstock production. And so you have this massive infrastructure 
in Argentina to support global trade. And Argentina's entered into a doom loop. I write about it frequently, but it peaked uh, nine years ago in total production. And this past year lost 50% of the crop from original estimates. A 50% loss is catastrophic, the level that the world just doesn't experience in a primary origin. Maybe there could be crop losses in emerging markets, et cetera, that don't have the infrastructure, don't have the fertilization, don't have the irrigation to support a crop. But in a major global origin like Argentina, it, it, it's just astounding to lose 50% of a crop. So the USDA attaché at about this time last year estimated the crop to be about 51 million metric tons. And most analysts are 24 to 25 million metric tons. In the coming year, the USDA analyst have forecasted a recovery for Argentina towards a more normal production. If, if that doesn't happen, and, and Argentina is having a very significant change in weather patterns for the winter, they've been extremely warm. They've had 100 degree Fahrenheit temperatures over the last couple of weeks. And, and here we're talking about the end of July and the beginning of August. If Argentina doesn't normalize this year, in other words, goes into the 10th year of the doom loop, that the implications for global protein meal supplies are incredibly significant. And, and can, you, can you just, sorry, there's so much to unpack there. So, but firstly, what does that affect when it comes to supermarket shelves, you know, when it comes to global food supply? I mean, just, just can you sort of contextualize that? Where, where would those, uh, that meal and oil seeds, oil ended up? And, and what does it mean kind of at the consumer level? Well, the good news for the U.S. listeners is, is not much, that we're, we're not an importer of Argentine meal, we're an exporter. The Brazilians are exporters as well, but for many, many other global, global destinations, in, including Europe, it, it, it's quite significant. It raises the price of a key feedstock, primarily for poultry and aquafeed, but also for swine, less so for cattle. But it, it is direct inflation in, in the feedstock for the global importer, uh, historic global importer of Argentine meal, who's producing poultry and fish. And that process of passing along the increase in prices from Argentina is, is certainly contributing to food inflation globally. And and has this crop failure been felt yet, or are we sort of in the period where right now it's starting to become apparent that it's not there? Yeah, I mean, here, and here I'll bring in Brazil. It's it's just amazing. At the same time that Argentina was was having a catastrophic loss, Brazil and and total soybean production was going to a record, and the Brazilians are really stepping up their total production and challenging the ability of their grain handling, their, their financial systems, and, and their logistical systems with just immense production. And that's, that's something we can, we can touch on maybe a bit later, but the Brazilians offset the Argentine losses. So the, so the globe as a whole sort of got a, a, a flat result. If the Brazilians hadn't had the size crop that they had had, we'd feel the impact a lot more. With the global trade and, and the global nature of, of trade and protein meals and vegetable oils, it all sort of worked out okay in, in, in the end because of the size of the Brazilian crop. 
the USDA particularly is forecasting normalization. And if normalization doesn't occur, or at least a step towards normalization in this in this coming year, it's it's going to be very hard for the global consumer not to begin to panic a bit. Yeah. And this is part of kind of this first part we're talking about, which is it, global crop production is pretty much on the edge this year. And there's and it could it could go quite dramatically south in a short amount of time uh, as some of the things you're going to lay out. But just staying just because I think it's instructive. Why? Why was it down 50 percent in Argentina? Can you just give us some sense of how important weather is and we'll come on to the u.s in a minute but just staying on argentina and brazil was it just the rains moved further north i mean what happened it was weather it was weather but catastrophic losses don't occur like that with with just adverse weather we have adverse weather in many parts of the world and we can observe the outcomes so yes weather for sure that's that's the heavily most heavily weighted factor in in any crop year that's the most heavily weighted factor What's missing in Argentina, due to the incredibly difficult financial situation that uh, the Argentines find themselves in, and that's policy and politics that, that I think for, for most consumers, they understand that that's, that's, a, that's an ongoing challenge in Argentina. But that lends itself to limited investment in, in agriculture. And, and so the genetics in Argentina for soybeans, for instance, are at least a decade old. It's just amazing to me the pictures I see from Argentina and, and really how decrepit the entire system has become. So process around seed technology is so important. It, it, it drives global increases in yield. We can see that in the United States. We can see that in Brazil on a like-for-like -like basis with soybean production. Those genetics are missing. Fertilization is missing due to the, due to the weakness in the peso relative to global fertilizer prices. And, and then overcoming the adverse weather that you're talking about, stabilizing crop production via irrigation is super important. I think, I think a lot of people who are not as deeply involved in agriculture as I am don't understand the role of irrigation. It's incredibly important. And, and when those systems decay, when those systems atrophy to the extent that they have in Argentina, it, it lends itself to a crop disaster along the lines of a 50% loss in, in total production that we, we just don't see in other places of the world who have periods of time or regions, for instance, the United States, we had some regions in the United States that for a time period had equally adverse weather as, as Argentina experienced last year. And we'll see what the yields look like at the end of this crop year, but it, it won't come anywhere close to a 50% loss. Yeah. Let's turn to the US before we sort of move on to a couple of the wild cards here. And all this ties up into what feedstocks might look like for biofuels and that food for fuel story, how that looks potentially next year. So the US, we're coming up to harvest. Um, it's been a really dry, hot summer in some regions. Where, where do we stand in both, I guess, on the grain side, but also on the on the soy side? Yeah, I, this, I'll start with the soy side. We We really determine the crop for for soybeans in the months of August and, and September. Those are, that's the key yield determinant period. And, and we had a complete change in weather in the United States in July. The, about the second week of July, we, we, we had a, a system in place in what are called the I states, the, the, the key states. So 
Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, certainly the, the, those are key. There's other, there's certainly, there's Nebraska, Minnesota and others, but the I-State drought was the focus of, of the market. And, and it was akin to the last great drought in the United States, which was 2012. So we were on the path to what, what appeared to be a very adverse summer season and it, and it changed. And that's that that ultimately will rescue the, the the soybean crop from the from the I think worst recorded crop condition ratings in the history of the of the United States. I think that's right, Paul. If not, it was it was second worst. Soybeans are an incredible crop under very adverse conditions. They they literally will shut down. They'll go into a reserve mode, a dormancy mode under extremely hot, dry conditions and wait. And when the rains come, the, the, the way that the plant recovers, it's, it, it's a miracle to watch. That is not the case for corn. Corn has a very, very narrow, it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the Achilles heels of the, of the corn crop. It has a very narrow yield determinant period. And, and that's about a 14 day period that, that normally is somewhere between the first and, and the third week of July. And, and during that period, we did have adverse conditions. That impact is being measured right now. There's crop scouts out in the fields. They, they can make estimations because the yield determinant period for corn has ended. And, and there's, there's some pluses and minuses that will occur from this point to harvest with a, a, a few timely rains or, or, or very dry conditions that, that sort of reduce what's already there. But the yield determinant period for all intents purposes is complete. And while the USDA issued a number uh, last week for the August crop report that suggested an okay crop, the, the reality is a lot of private forecasters who, again, are out in the fields right now are calling into question what the, what the USDA suggested the crop would be. So my presentation to people who've asked me for my opinion on the crop is the August crop estimate for corn is, is probably the best crop estimate for the year that we're going to see. And each subsequent crop estimate is going to decline. Mm. And alternatively for soybeans, the, the August is, is probably the lowest crop estimate we're going to see because the weather has just been so good. And in each subsequent crop report is going to increase. Where the offset is, I want to I want to I want to circle back to Brazil. The Brazilians grew such an enormous crop and the year on year increase was so large that logistically they, they just couldn't handle it. And, and, and so it, it, it's, it's stacked up at the ports and internally as they're trying to execute their program. So the, so the Brazilians will take some of the pressure off prices and supplies of a declining U.S. crop because they've got such a large crop, both for corn. Primarily, they're going to help us out on corn, but they still have a very large soybean crop that's still being distributed into global markets, primarily China. And that is helping. So we, we talk about in, in the grain trade, large crops have long tails. In other words, you, you, you move in beyond your normal seasonal end of, of the marketing pattern. And, and that's what we're experiencing global trade right now. So, so Brazil, both the, both the record corn and soybean crops have, have sort of kept a lid on, on a simmering pot. 
Yeah. So so basically Brazil's kind of saved the day. The picture in Argentina is terrible. The picture in the US has been rough. And all of this has downstream impacts over the next few months and year on both obviously food and vegetable oil, but also biofuels. The black swan in this, this sort of like, it's not actually even a black swan because it's not necessarily that unlikely, is obviously Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine is an incredibly important incredibly fertile region and it's incredibly important for for global grain supplies where does you know what's i mean i you know dread to think what would happen if a tactical nuke went off there and, and shut it down for a very long time what's sort of going on there and how you know obviously the grains now being embargo i mean what's the how important is that when you look forward to prices in the near and medium term it, it, it's so important and i, I just I, i'm i'm just shocked at the market's response to all the developments. Um, I've, I've been at my career for 36 years and I cannot recall a time when strategic export infrastructure of food to very needy people in the world was under attack and bombed and rendered useless and, and global markets didn't have a significant change in price. I mean, what, what has occurred in, in the Ukraine First of all, it's it's fascinating to me. I, 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 I'm sure there'll be books and, and all sorts of uh, historical documentation of, of the way that the Ukrainian farmer has still continued to farm in the midst of of a war going on. That's that that's incredible to me. And, and it, it speaks to their to their courage that, that, that they've done that. And with with a, a driver, I would I would suspect not only of, of, of making money and keeping their farms intact, et cetera, but they're their responsibility to, to the globe and in food production. But I wake up every morning and look at markets and just think to myself, how in God's name are we at this price with what's going on? An incredibly important origin in the world for food for the poorest of the poor countries in the world. It, it's, it's astounding. It's absolutely astounding to me that the markets are as complacent as they are. And <laughs> the specter of a of a tactical nuclear weapon. A, a, I, don't, I don't know if you can ever talk about a small nuclear event or not. I don't think that's that's possible. But contaminating some of the most fertile ground in the world, the historic breadbasket of the world, rendering it useless for for generations is is it's it's frightening to think about. So, I mean, get your comments on China as well. I mean, I, I would agree with you, by the way. And also, it's important to say that a significant portion of that farmland is 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 being mined, has been mined, and is not going to get back to useful production for quite some time. And I right. would echo what right. you said on the bravery of uh, of Ukrainian farmers. There's also been kind of this idea that, and, and I guess this is what's kind of in the background of this conversation is, when you start having with with such a variable climate with with more and more extremes of temperature rainfall on either side of that scale coming along there is kind of this growing view of you could have a year when every region has a you know a disrupted harvest which would have profound impacts on global food supply is that something that is very unlikely. Is that something that we could have gotten close to this year without Brazil? I mean, can you just talk to that? And what, you know, when you talk about how complacent the market potentially is, what kind of price rise could you see? The scenario that you lay out, it's, it's, it's tough to imagine that every, every major origin in, in the world has a, an adverse 
growing season in, in, a, in a same crop year or sequentially two crop years. That's difficult to imagine. It's really one of the, the amazing elements of global food security is the growth in, in the Southern Hemisphere that allows the Northern Hemisphere to have a, a challenging season and, 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 then, and then vice versa, where the Northern Hemisphere can make up for losses in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. So from a global security perspective, that's, that's difficult to imagine. And it, and it, and it really is beneficial to humanity, the the build out in in Brazil specifically, who's who's just been able to achieve levels of production that I think no one would have imagined five years ago, boosting global food security. And and the other one, and, and here it's going to be considered a bit controversial, I'm sure, by some of your by some of your listeners. But when we talk about biofuels, specifically U.S. biofuels and the enormous demand that biofuels put on our crop production. In effect, that that acts as a reserve. Let's take corn ethanol, for example. We we consume, we or the ethanol industry consumes 40% of of the crop. And and with each year, as corn yields generally trend higher and, and, and we produce more, that percentage has slowly but surely been going lower. But the reality is it's still an enormous amount of food. And, and should an event, and we, we, we've had stress tests on this uh, back in 2012, which was an extreme weather event, but should a global event occur, it, it's very easy for the, for the ethanol industry, as an example, to just wind down, to just turn the machine off. And, and when that occurs, it's an enormous amount of food that falls to the bottom line, more, more than the world can consume. And industrial consumption is, is far beyond what any human being could, or collection of human beings could consume in, in, in a given year. So if you look at biofuels policy from a different perspective, whether you're pro or against, one of, one of the outcomes is an incredible source of food that, that can come back onto the global markets as food and not fuel with, with simply going from, from on to off. It's just that fast. And in 2012, when we, when we had a very adver- adverse growing season in the United States, that's in effect what happened. So if you, if you now take that globally across biofuels globally, and, 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 the, and one of the big ones and one of the real changes that's going on in Indonesia with Indonesia, uh, running headlong at, at higher and higher blends of palm oil into their domestic con- consumption. Indonesia is by far the world's largest palm producer, which is by far the world's most important vegetable oil. There, there's global policy that, that in effect can be turned off in short order or at, at a minimum turned down that brings so much food back on the balance on the balance how does sheet. that so, happen sorry like is, is this just simply that prices for food go up so much that it gets directed towards that or would this be a government intervention i mean how would that actually take place let's say next year argentina doesn't normalize brazil doesn't have a good year the us you know and suddenly you see a rapid demand a rapid price increase you know and just tell me how just how, i think that's instructive to understand how that would happen yeah, it's it. It would be a little bit of both. In the case of 2012, it was it was just price it, the profitability for producing ethanol just collapsed, and and so the the losses that would that would be realized if if an ethanol company continued operating were were, were extreme. 
right? So an extreme message was sent. There was no need for the EPA or, or the executive branch of the government to get involved and, and just say, stop, we're, you know, by fiat, we're ending policy. But you could imagine globally that that two-part way of doing that probably, probably leans more to government fiat than it does to prices. Prices will get to a point that populations get destabilized, crowds are forming, rocks are being picked up, and, and, and the government says, okay, that's it, right? Enough of this. And we've seen that across multiple countries this year where government intervened, not so much to end biofuels policy, but but to stop the rise of inflation. When, when as I said, the crowds were still forming, they, you know, they were getting close to picking up the rocks to start throwing. But it, it will be it will be in 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 my estimation globally, it will be fiat that that causes that change. Because the, the biofuels market is in a very different world to when it was in 2012, right? Which was primarily ethanol. Now yes. you've got so much capital has flowed into processing, into into refineries around renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, biodiesel, and so forth. And I assume a lot of those, as, as, as they would want, a lot of those feedstock supplies have been put into long-term supply deals and you know it's not like they can the the producer the you know, the 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 agri houses the farmers whatever can can just switch those contracts off right i mean just saying it's i would imagine that that, that it would be required that it's fiat otherwise you'd have a hell of a lot of lawsuits right well yes exactly you you absolutely would and the fiat uh, and and what comes with it as a as a response to farmers who obviously are, are going to feel a lot of suffering from the price drop that would occur with, with fiat is, is, is also going to bring the government in the other door to try to, to, try to, solve, to, try to solve the problem. The reality is that, that biofuels are blended into a primary uh, petroleum-based fuel. And, and, the, and the reality is that those blend rates are, while consequential, for instance, ethanol, in the United States with a 10% blend and an and ability to go to a 15% blend that the that the industry can can support it's it's still 85% petroleum based and can go back to 100% petroleum in, in very short order now with with market signals I'm, I'm not dismissing the fact that that puts a stress now on the petroleum producers and gasoline supplies you've just if you if you have 10% blend and by and and, and because of prices or, or fiat of some sort, you take away that 10% at, at the margin, that's extremely impactful to gasoline supplies. But but you have the supply, right? You, yeah. you, and, and that's the reality that biofuels are replacing incrementally petroleum-based feedstocks or petroleum-based fuels, and, and that can be reversed fairly quickly. Again, not notwithstanding the market signals and, and the tumult that goes and the volatility that goes along with it, it can still be accomplished. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. This is so crucial, though, because we had 
Michael Bernard on talking about the future of transportation and you know the ultimate thesis was electrification of everything and where it was hard to electrify you know you would be using biofuels for example aviation you know and we've had Steve Moore on talking about sustainable aviation fuel but it is crucial to the energy transition pathway it's sort of the god of the gaps in some ways uh, you know how it's applied I would do biofuels there yeah but it's, I mean especially know, in regards to sustainable aviation fuel especially in regards to sustainable aviation fuel it's the only pathway. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're saying 50%, you know, and the rest is sort of other technologies, right, and offsets. But right. my point being, we're, we're already, you know, you can argue we're in a stressed point today. And were it come down to it, this, the, 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 the crops go to food, of course, you know, not, not least, well, for, as they should. When you, when you talk to the energy companies who are the prime movers in this, who are investing a significant amount of money, is there the understanding that they face this fiat risk, they face this government intervention risk, they face this environmental risk, and we, we know it's already to some extent stressed? I mean, how prevalent is that understanding there? This is not like an oil well where, you know, it flows come what may. It, it, this is very much, you know, it's, we're talking crop cycles and we're talking weather here. Yeah, and, and that's amazing. That's a that's amazing uh, to me in, in my journeys with the petroleum industry, whether it's refining or fuel companies, et cetera, et cetera, is, is quite frankly how little they understand that. And, and it comes from, as, as you said, the, the petroleum industry uses their technology to look to look underground and, and they can see a, a pool of oil and they can calculate the price that it will take to extract it, but they, they know it's there. And they, they face an industry that on our side, on the agricultural biofuel industry, where, where we, we get up and, and, and check the weather channel at 5.30 every morning and change our opinion about what the crop size is. Extreme volatility around price discovery, around crop size discovery, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it really, in my opinion, hasn't morphed into something more predictable with satellite technology and, and gene uh, genetics around crops and the, and the predictability of the, of the seed producers to tell us exactly what we're going to get for a crop size. So there's still a lot of volatility around that discovery. And, and, and sometimes we, we really, as, as with soybeans, we may not know till well into the crop cycle what, what, a, what a range of the crop is, but we still all wait for the combines to run through the rows and, and tell us what's in the field. And the, the petroleum industry and the fuel industry, I, I, I still don't think as they get more involved in, in these businesses, they understand how quickly prices can can change the available supply of the of the biofuel you know as, as we said one one more non it doesn't even need to be a nuclear event but one more event in ukraine just just shutting down uh, global exports uh, from there with the switch back to the U, to the us would put extreme pressure on on feedstock prices and change economic calculations quite quite literally in five business days the calculation can go from what appears to be a very profitable quarter to, to something that, that looks awful. And, and that, that understanding, uh, I, I think is missing on the petroleum, on the blender side, on those who buy biofuels for blend into petroleum based feedstocks. We, we just don't know the supply. And then in regards to, we don't know the supply until the crop is harvested. And then in, in regards to increasing predictability around judging that or estimating that I, I just, I've been at this 36 years. I, I, I don't see tremendous improvement. 
I think it's fair to say from from our perspective, I think the more forward-leaning refiners, fuels companies are hiring quite heavily from the ag sector, right? Both at the leadership level and at the, the analyst and trading level to bring in that expertise and understanding. I think there's, you know, how that translates culturally through the rest of the the organization is can be a challenge. But I, I think there is a recognition there. And we're increasingly seeing that rather than it just being your your sort of head of, you know, whatever it might be, products moving into these types of roles. I think there is an increasing, at least in certain organizations that we're working, we've, we, we've made a, a, a healthy few years placing AGS people into the energy markets. And, you know, and obviously, you know, the energy world is a, is a richer space in, in many ways, which is attractive to, to AG talent. And you and I have had that discussion yeah. offline. Yeah. And but, it should go that way. It, 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 should, it, it should go that way. I, I don't expect a, a, a lifelong petroleum person to understand the corn cycle and it, and it's it's difficult enough for those of us who've been doing it a long time so so start with somebody who's been doing it for a while and, and help get the organization up to speed for sure yeah okay but this this nicely segues into the EPA so we've we've done it for 30 minutes we're now talking about the the real backdrop to biofuels which is just i guess giving some slice of view on on how variable and somewhat fragile some of these you know the the this feedstocks piece can be especially when you throw in like you know all the major trends of this podcast since day one deglobalization you know energy transition and, and digitization of volatility and so forth but the epa and other you know we're, we're right back as, as with many things in the energy transition you are at the behest of regulators policy and we've got this sort of really interesting scenario where the the administration in the US is and this is consequential globally so i think it's worthwhile talking about it is obviously very pro biofuels where the EPA the administrative body has sort of somewhat gone in a different way in its recent um RVO can you just tell us what the RVO is what it says and and why this is somewhat surprising the EPA took over the the basically the RVO just in general being the the fuel blending or biofuel blending policy for for a period of three years from 2023 through 2025. And this this was envisioned early on in in legislation that there would be a transition from Congress uh, to the EPA. And and, and so the EPA, from the the perspective of those of us in the biofuels business, threw a a dripping wet blanket on, on the fire that was the build out for renewable diesel, which which has just had incredible uh, momentum, both from the feedstock producer, so primarily in the United States, the soy processor, and and then from from the refiner fuel producer. So we, we had this over the last number of years. We've had Marathon combining with ADM, Phillips sixty six combining with the with a co op in Iowa, and then this blockbuster deal between Bungie and Chevron. And, and so for the first time in, in my career, we, we, we have these refining companies entering into soy processing. And that's a, that's a level of cooperation and handshaking that we never experienced in the ethanol industry, which, where, where it was a very adverse mandated fuel that, the, that quite frankly, the refiners didn't like the fuel. It, it had to be identity preserved. It had different logistics, different requirements logistically, couldn't be put in a pipeline, the same for biodiesel, but along comes renewable diesel and the refining industry embraces it. So, so we've got the soy processing industry in, in the U.S. announcing anywhere by 
a range of calculations from 30 to 40% increase in capacity. And, and you have the, the refining industry partnering with and financing many of these projects. And the, the momentum is, is going uh, tremendously. And we're waiting for the EPA last November, that's November of, of, or December of 22, waiting for the EPA to give us an early indication. And, and they throw the wet blanket on, on the fire. Literally, they said current capacity suffices. So that, what, that's not the built out projection, but at current capacity suffices for the next three years. When tally up all of the projects that had been announced, both in producing renewable diesel and in soy processing, there was nearly two times as much capacity already forecasted, already announced. And, and, it, and it was the strangest event. Prices for, for soybean oil collapsed, for other vegetable oils followed soybean oil sharply lower. And, and it was a perspective that I think across my peer group in agriculture and, and many I speak to in the fuel industry, a sort of what the heck was that? Yeah, I mean, no one saw that coming. Uni universally across my peer group and others that I speak with, there wasn't somebody who sort of had, oh, you know, there was there there was some sense this was coming. There was no sense this was coming. It just did not make sense relative to an Inflation Reduction Act that had set out these expansive goals around biofuels, particularly around sustainable aviation fuel and, and what the country would need to achieve. And, and, and so you, you have the executive branch of, of the government on the one hand, cheerleading biofuels, setting out expansive, grandiose plans, and then the EPA comes in and, and says, no, we're, we're, we have all we need right now, full stop. What was the alternative? Were people expecting, you know, mandates like in, in, in ethanol blending? You know, how did that translate into into sort of what was missing in terms of concrete policy that caused those price collapse? Well, I think it was just support. It, it, it was the regulator in, in effect saying full stop. I'll credit Randy Stewie for this one, the CEO of Darling. He made the compelling case that the U.S. ethanol industry likely has to get growing again and renewable diesel has to continue on this on this pace of of growth to to achieve these outcomes and without that the the inflation reduction act and the blend of biofuels into sustainable aviation fuel and and you have to remember round numbers a sustainable aviation fuel aviation fuel is eight to ten depending if you include defense and some of the large carriers like ups or fedex to 12 times road fuel I mean, it's enormous. And so for the EPA to stop any of the momentum rather than join the administration in cheerleading the growth, just it's going to cause confusion. And, and so the market response was a dramatic decline in U.S. soybean oil prices. And strangely enough, the, the U.S. who needs to export nothing on soybean oil, we actually started exporting oil. Again. We, we actually started fixing sales, which was ironic that we can't afford to lose a single pound of soybean oil to global markets. And yet the, the EPA's announcement made the U.S. competitive again in global markets, which is which is all changed subsequently. And I'll get into that. But it, it, it lent itself to just immense confusion. And, and then the recovery was was amazing. It, it, it was absolutely amazing to me because I've never seen in my career where industry ignored policy. It, it, it basically, it's almost as if the industry said to the EPA, I'm moving forward without you. I really don't care 
what your three-year period of control of this is going to be. I'll, I'll go with the Inflation Reduction Act long-term view. And so the, the, the whole process and public earnings calls, et cetera, et cetera, was CEOs expressing uh, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead response to the EPA. And, and prices have recovered. Pro additional projects have been announced. And, and, it's, and it's like that very bad period in November, December is over. And, and I'm just amazed how the market is now ignoring this three-year time period and really looking towards decades of, of demand from sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, you know, industry is is ahead of the regulator, is ahead of, is ahead of policy in this and pushing forwards and you know trying to keep this on a global level, and that's they're similar similar globally. Why do you think that is? Is that because you've got obviously the the SEC proposed disclosures? We did an episode on that earlier in the year with Julie McLaughlin, you know, which was going to require public companies to start you know their scope all the way down to scope three so you know they are going to really start caring about their supply chains and reporting it but i guess it all ends up at this idea there's either going to be some carbon taxes or carbon credits mandated globally or mandated much more broadly than they are at the moment but i guess even then it still ends up at this idea that the consumer is going to click that button when they book their flight that says offset my carbon right that or consumers are going to be willing to spend more on choosing sustainable fuel over conventional fuel and I, I as you and I discussed offline it's an interesting episode coming up with the head of a large uh, retailer who, who just is saying that that's just not the case they're just not seeing those behaviors yet I mean I just why do you think industry is so far ahead yeah I I think it's two parts so we'll start we'll start uh, with that one is I, I think there's a sense that any recovery in perspective on what fossil fuels are needs to begin with a biofuels element. So, so while some of the challenges for for alternative uh, fuels and and for electrification are have been laid out by some of your fascinating pods with those in the know who are laying out the case for uh, limited resources and and metals etc. to achieve to achieve complete electrification. I think there's a sense from the refining side that we, we still have to make this well, you know, while well, while the the consumer is going to unfortunately discover that electrification isn't there and, and is going to have to swing their perspective back to petroleum, it's, it's still going to have to look very attractive. So I think there is an element of appeal to the retailer and especially younger generations that that that's how this this plays out. If if electrification doesn't occur, then it will be a swing back to looking at petroleum and saying, what more can you be doing? And so they're adopting these policies as permanent. And then the second thing is it, it's just it's it's so much work to get to where the industry would need to be to serve the blend rates and sustainable sustainable aviation fuel that are proposed. And I, I think it was Mike Worth, the, the CEO at, at at Chevron, who in response to a question uh, about this RVO and, and the EPA said something uh, like, uh, Chevron thinks in decades, not in three-year increments. So th they have a lot of work to do and, and they've got to get going. And, and so I, I think a big part of this is just the work to do. Again, aviation fuels at eight to 12 times road fuel demand, Those th it's hard to get your head around how big those numbers are. If the refining industry is going to be impactful, they've, they've got to start pouring concrete and laying rebar and getting going. And they're just not going yeah. to wait. 
and finding partners, right? There's only, you know, right. this is a this is a consolidated commodities sector right now. Normally, when you've had a long, you know, a period like we have, although it's called this year, rising prices, we see a lot more new entrants, startups, and so forth. We're just not seeing that, right? The 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 commodities world, whether it's ags, energies, or metals, is incredibly consolidated. In part because of the rising costs and barriers to entry around finance, around regulation, around compliance, and so forth, and also fundamentally a very limited talent pool. And so we there yeah, there are only so many partners you can go out there and hook up with if you're an energy company, and vice versa, right? Yeah, and 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 the spike in inflation that we talked about and and, and its impact on the consumer that that's relatively new, right? So we were at uh, zero interest rate policy for for a very long time, and stable prices, and and so you know I'll call them I'll put them under the big rubric of green ambitions. We're 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 moving forward, and 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 maybe now the reality check for the consumer has been these things are very expensive and I can't afford them. Yeah, which kind of it's you know it's that feedback loop as well, isn't it? I mean, that's the point that this individual made, and we'll be having them on the podcast later in the year. But you've got all of this, your your upstream supply chain has got all this pressure to 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 decarbonize. But when it comes down to the final consumer, stressed by inflation, you don't really care where your olive oil came from if you can't afford, you know, first virgin olive oil. You're not going to pay an extra dollar for it also to be carbon free, right? I mean, that just seems to be the case, and part of that is the urgency of the problem, right? This is a we're talking about an externality. You know, what can I do when you know X country over there is is producing a hundred times more than we are, et cetera, et cetera? But I guess another story. But you've kind of, I guess that's why we're calling this episode "Biofuels on the Edge." Is you've got sort of these multiple pressures. You've got a a clear realization that over the long term they are going to play a crucial role they must do especially sustainable aviation fuel as you say but you've got this huge amount of uncertainty from the regulatory side you know okay the market's recovered but i'm sure that costs some people their jobs if they were on the wrong side of that dramatic move but you overall you've got regulatory uncertainty both a patchwork globally as well as changing administrations changing goals and then you've also got the the fact that these are crops and as we've spent the first part of the episode on you've got a really on the edge year and one that yes everything tends towards the normal but it doesn't have to in a couple of, in a two-year back-to-back cycle has profound impacts and then you throw in deglobalization wars and all the rest of it it's a it's, it's a tough place if you're on the investment committee for looking at a you know a biofuels play i imagine it is. I keep and I keep thinking about Adam Rosenzweig and the, and, and the idea of, of of peak energy or peak cheap energy. Every every time I've told you, I've listened to that pod five times. It's just fascinating the case that he lays out for the fact that that we've seen the peak in certain places uh, like the Bakken Shale, and and there's new evidence that the Permian is peaking. And and the U.S. as as he points out, has just been this enormous engine for growth in in petroleum production, more so than any other place in the world. And and so to have signs of a peak from the the global we'll call it the global engine for petroleum production beginning to slow, that that is that's 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 a big one, right? That's that's a big economic driver. And so one of the one of the elements of biofuels that could evolve is just petroleum increases in prices dramatically, and all of a sudden the profitability of of producing 
biofuels and in my, in my world, agricultural biofuels becomes, it becomes very profitable. And, and that's, that's a specter that, again, I've listened, I've listened to Adam five times. It's such a, it's such a great episode. I, I, I absolutely love it. He makes such clear and compelling cases for what the world is up against from, from energy and, 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 the, and the case that he makes around the importance of energy to civilization. It's fascinating. But if we are at peak petroleum, then all of a sudden biofuels are going to start making a lot of sense just in making a, a contribution to total fuel supply. Mm. Episode 140 of the HC Insider podcast for those that are interested. And yes, I think it's one of our, our most popular episodes. Well, in, in the same sense that you're, you know, you're fascinated by that episode, I often turn to you for understanding on the, on the biofuel space. And, you know, we have a lot of great conversations. What do you, what do you, let's end up here. So given all that we've just discussed, what are you, what are you working on at the moment? The world needs vegetable protein meal. It's, it's the tailwind in, in global agriculture. And, and, and so, you know, the first thing that happens, I think we talked about this in the first episode that we did together. The first thing that happens is global GDP expands and population expands is, is a demand on, on meat supply. When, when GDP increases, people consume more, more protein. That's universal. It doesn't matter location. It doesn't matter religion. It doesn't matter culture. That's what happens. So, as a, as a vegetable protein meal industry, we have to grow to meet global demand. And as we're doing that, it just so happens that along comes renewable diesel policy to support that for the oil. But when, we, when, we're, when we're making the oil, we're producing the meal. So it's, it's, it's policy that, that is having a very positive out, outcome for global food security, not in its unintended positive consequence. So I, I work with investors and others to build out the, the capacity in the United States. I'm, I'm fascinated right now with processing capacity for some of the alternative non-food oil seeds that the industry, the refining industry would like to see develop. And, and it, it, it's only going to be developed if the farmer grower has an opportunity to deliver that crop, whether it's camelina, carinata, or crust seeds, cover crusts is, is uh, Chevron and Bungie have invested in. There, there has to be capacity, and, and today that capacity doesn't exist, and, and that's been a big focus of mine in the last six months. Well, Walter, it's been a fascinating discussion. You know, I know people can uh, reach out to you on LinkedIn and you publish a weekly thought piece on what's going on in the market, which I'm sure uh, deserves a much broader audience given your uh, your experience in, in, globally in these markets. And um, yeah, interesting, right? I, I think it's fascinating to sort of uh, get an update on, on where things stand. And it's a complex picture out there as we've as we've described. And hopefully some of the dramatic downsides don't appear. Absolutely. We don't want those dramatic downsides. But thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.